Joining us now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Hey, Al, how's it going over there? Uh, boy, good morning to all the ships at sea. Everything is good. Uh, you know, yesterday I had a normal day for pretty much every one of you listening. There was no shoveling, which was <laughs> kind of out of the ordinary, but I had two board meetings. Oh I had a clinic visit. I had an oil change, uh, not for me, that wasn't why I went to the clinic, it was for the car. And then, because I got an oil change, I thought, well, you know, a car wash, I should do a car wash. Me and everybody else had oh, that same no. idea. I waited and waited, I'm in the middle of the line, I'm in there forever, and then after you get all that time, you figure, I better stay here, I've got all this time put into this process. Then I bought bird food at a bird place. I went grocery shopping. I stopped to visit a relative. I had lunch with friends where we bemoaned a restaurant closing and celebrated the reopening of the Ellendale Cafe. Ooh. Then I went for a long walk. And when I got home, I took a online class, nine modules with a test that lasted way beyond midnight. What, and kind then of we, what kind of class are you doing, Al? I'm just curious. Uh, cybersecurity. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, so they're, um, I think the hardest part, they should have a glossary <laughs> when they start it all, because, boy, you know, they throw in tailgating and uh, all these different terms that are uh, kind of foreign to a lot of us dummies out here so but you all you folks all do that every day and then you wonder why you're tired we just uh, we're busy people so it's a it's a good thing i went outside this morning to turn over a few rocks not literally as a boy i'd turn over real rocks i'd walk outside chores were done i'd go outside and turn over a few rocks my dog would come with me and she'd run right in there stick her nose to see what was under those it was amazing what i found under those rocks and now when i go outside and just look at things i think of seeing nature's marvels as turning over rocks the house sparrows chirp like 76 trombones they could see spring from where they were perched and I welcomed the change of sounds, the more bird sounds, because Mary Oliver wrote, and I, I say this often, she's my favorite poet, I just, Mary Oliver was amazingly good. She said, in winter, all the singing is in the tops of the trees. And uh, by that, she means the wind blowing through those trees. So it's nice to hear the house sparrows. I know a lot of folks don't appreciate house sparrows, and that's all right. They'll get by without us loving them, I guess, but I, I do love them. Uh, Seth Chamberlain said, I saw a Cooper's hawk attack and eat a rock pigeon. Karen Wright, mm -hmm. you sent me something from the Master Gardener uh, listserv, and it was about a, uh, somebody had written about the bark being stripped off maple trees. Mm-hmm and said there had been a lot of that occurring this winter. Uh, it is, squirrels are known for their habits of chewing on things, and that includes the trees in your backyard. They chew the bark off to use for their nests and their drays, and once the bark is removed, the cambium layer of the tree contains sugars and nutrients that they love. And tree squirrels are known to chew off 
these trees and barks as means for constructing nests or drays, which are constructed uh, maybe 30 feet off the ground on average, I would guess around there. And a squirrel's nest consists of twigs, dry leaves, grass, and bark. When we look at them, we see pretty much leaves. That's what I was going to say. When you look up in the trees and you see it looks like a gigantic ball of mess of trees and twigs and stuff, are those from squirrel's nests? Because they don't look very sturdy to me. Yeah, it's amazing how they they can put them together. We had, oh, I don't remember that one day where we just had those terrific winds. So my goal that day was to walk around and look at squirrel drays to see how they survive. <laughs> I'm sure they lost a leaf or two, but they were there. They, huh. You know, the squirrels curled up in there and saying, boy, it's a windy day. I'm going to sleep this one out. And uh, it's amazing how well they can construct those things so that they can survive. Plus, keep the squirrels warm so they can't just be built for durability. They have to be built for warmth and comfort. You know, you don't want to have the, like you slept on a rock all night. So squirrels are in there. It's amazing how they can make these things just wonderful. They will also sometimes use these drays. Uh, to have their babies in. Uh, Sometimes they will do them in a tree, but sometimes they'll also have them in those drays. And according to some research, pregnant females will gnaw on bark to help cope with pain. Uh, I know like willows have uh, the same ingredients or one of the ingredients that we use in aspirin, so salicylic acid. So there might be something in the bark there that the poor squirrel is using because she has no CVS or Walgreens or anything to go to to get help. Or, and gray squirrels, they will mate twice a year, typically from December to February and then June through August. And an eastern gray squirrel's gestation period is 44 days, where the uh, red squirrel, the smaller one, is 40 and the fox squirrel, the bigger of the three, is 45 days. But again, the sap under the trees is packed with sodium and other nutrients that are good for squirrels. So we will see squirrels out licking roads to get the salt off the roads. So it's this sap is good for them. And they, again, they say pregnant females often don't eat just prior to giving birth. So bark stripping, again, may be their way of responding to the pain. Some say they're searching for water, but I don't know. They they strip the bark even during wet springs. Maybe they're looking for maple syrup. I they're <laughs> I definitely looking for sap. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, searching for food just by eating the inner bark later layer. And just because a squirrel has access to a quantity of food doesn't mean it's obtaining sufficient nutrients. Oh. Squirrels may strip bark simply because they enjoy doing it. Maybe it's a hobby for a squirrel. They're bark strippers. If you've got a small tree, I was going to say it's worth to put one of those plastic or cloth uh, protectors on it because the tree will die if you you strip that outer layer because, like you said, that's how they get the nutrients. So for some younger trees, I usually put on one of those protector uh, columns that they, they have. That's a good idea because they can girdle the tree, and once that's done, there's no coming back. We will try to nurse the tree, and it'll look like it's doing okay, but sooner or later, it's a goner. 
squirrels may strip bark simply because they enjoy doing it, just as some people enjoy doing odd activities. Uh, we may never know why they, all the reasons they do that, but the one thing we can say for sure, they do it. Speaking of squirrels, Miss Lona sent me a video she'd made of this gray squirrel in her backyard. And she threw out some blueberries in there on the snow. And the squirrel picks them up and checks them out and then carries them a little ways and buries them in the snow. So it's caching food in the snow. So I'm hoping the squirrel was planning on eating them like the next day or something because that's probably not a, a great idea to cache berries in snow. But the squirrel knows more than I do about the process, so it probably knows what it's doing. They will certainly cache much more than they can eat in a good year. Uh, Ross Peterson of Hayward has a pileated woodpecker in his yard, so he said, I'm buying suet. It's fun seeing it. Uh, Tim Scott sent me something from Live Science, and it said for the last 46,000 years, a small bird that had died during the last ice age has been frozen, shielded from decay and scavengers, until two Russian men hunting for fossil mammoth tusks discovered its body in a Siberian permafrost. And the bird was in such good shape, it looked like it had died just a few days ago, said Love Dolan, a professor of evolutionary genetics at the Center for Paleogenetics in Stockholm, who was with the ivory hunters when they discovered the bird. The bird is in pristine condition, Dolan said. The find is extraordinary because small animals like this would normally disintegrate very quickly after death due to scavengers and microbial activity. The frozen flyer is one of a kind, too. It's the only near-intact bird carcass documented from the last ice age. And some might be wondering, well, what kind of bird is it? It's a female horned lark, and horned larks are the ones we see on our roads here often. When they fly, they're dark above and uh, light underneath and just really pretty, and they nest around here. So that's, that's pretty cool. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Bryce Gaudian sent me a, a collection of photos. Uh, Bryce is from Hayward, and he said, I saw a flock of robins yesterday. There is hope for spring. It's been feeling like another eternal winter here in south-central Minnesota, at least to me. Dave Bartke saw a hooded merganser and a great blue heron in Rice County. Brad Abendroth had a hermit thrush in Olmstead County. Bobby Forrester sent me a photo of an ibis. She's staying in Florida, and she saw this ibis down there. It's a white ibis, and the mascot of the University of Miami in Florida is a white ibis, affectionately called Sebastian the Ibis. And legend has it that they chose the white ibis for its heroic ability to withstand hurricanes, which is the name of the university's football team, the Miami Hurricanes. Uh, Milton Blomberg, a friend, saw a varied thrush in uh, Olmstead County. And I don't know if you'd call it the splatometer or the splatometer. Uh, I'm going to go with splatometer. Uh-huh. And it's another one where they're measuring insect die-offs by using car windshields. 
and European researchers. There's a Danish study now that used data collected every summer from 1997 to 2017 and found an 80% decline over that time in the number of insects splattered. And another survey from Britain's Kent region, where I've been, I stayed in West Malling in Kent, like the garden spot of the UK. Uh, they found 50% fewer impacts in 2019 than they had in 2004. So lots of studies on, on insects, and they're all coming up with about the same results. And I guess, would that surprise anybody? Probably not. I, maybe when you're in your backyard slapping mosquitoes, you say, well, there's just as many as there's ever been. But we have waged a war, a relentless war against insects. So I, I guess it's no surprise that their numbers are probably uh, diminishing a bit, or in some cases a lot. A listener said, Al, how did the myth of hummingbirds migrating on the backs of geese start? Hmm. You know, I heard that growing up. I still hear it occasionally, but growing up, I heard that all the time. They'd tell me, oh, yeah, the Canada geese, they're starting to head south. The hummingbirds will be riding along. And I thought, well, oh, that just seems kind of strange. But, you know, when you're little, you got to believe your elders because, boy, there was just no future in not believing them. People have hinted that John James Audubon actually believed that and passed it along. Uh, I didn't know the man, so I can't say if that's true. But it is difficult in a way to understand how such a myth started, and even more so why it endures. I've never talked to a single waterfowl hunter who found a hummingbird hitchhiking on a goose. And then I think, if I were a hummingbird, oh, I'd love a free ride. Man, who wouldn't want to just hop on a goose and say, "Woohoo, let's go. <laughs> the problem is hummingbirds and geese do not migrate at the same time or to the same places. And geese don't serve meals on their flights. So the, a hummingbird needs to eat a lot. It'd get really, really hungry. You can't even buy a meal on a goose. There, and there isn't an overwhelming amount of data about the migration of hummingbirds. And uh, back years ago when I was a boy, there was much less. So I suspect it was because people couldn't get their mind around the fact that such a tiny bird was able to fly such long distances on its own power. You just look at that little bird and say, it flies across the Gulf of Mexico? Really? I don't think so. It must fly in the back of a goose. That would make sense. So, yeah, they don't. And uh, it's it's one of those cool myths. I just, I, I like myths and folklore. It uh, certainly has a place there. It's somebody, I was in Outer Banks not too long ago, uh, speaking down there in North Carolina at some things, and I I saw whales, and I was in Alaska and saw some whales, and I got a nice email from somebody who sent some photos of whales that they had seen, and they threw a question in there. I am certainly not a, a whale expert, but she asked, she read about the weights of some of these whales, and she said, how do scientists weigh a whale 
And, and a big this, scale? Yeah, I would, Super yeah, big you scale. Yeah, you know, I had my chihuahua. I could <laughs> tell how much he weighed. I'd just pick him up, and I'd stand on the scale, and then I'd put him down, and then I'd go back on the scale and use a little math and subtraction, and I knew how much he weighed. But you can't do that with a whale. What you do, I would think you go to a whale weigh station. I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> it's a combination of math, experience, and estimation, good guesses. And they can use, some of you have probably seen boat slings, and they could use that for live or freshly deceased whales. And I walked a beach on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and my walk took me near a beached whale that had a death smell strong Mm. enough to gag an entire county. And I wouldn't be willing to even guess its weight because I couldn't get close enough. I didn't have a big enough handkerchief or mask to put around my, my face. They use drones some, and the drones will go out, they'll photograph the length and the width of the whale, and they can determine its volume by that, and they convert that to weight by experience. Hey, the Al. The blue whale. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, go ahead. Continue on that, and then after you talk with whales, I want you to look at your email, FYI, because I okay. sent you a couple things from listeners, too. So, okay. The blue whale is the largest animal ever known on Earth. And this marine mammal is up to 100 feet long, weighs as much as 200 tons. Its tongue can weigh as much as an elephant, Ooh. and its heart as much as an automobile. And talk about being unable to wrap a mind around something. That's the one that gets me. I just I think of that, and I think this, that's just, that can't be. That, not, a tongue that big and a heart that big. We always talk about everything. People, he's got a heart as big as the whole world, and I guess uh, these guys are pretty close. Oh, uh, it's the what's a photo? I am looking at photos, folks. I know this is very helpful for you listening. Oh, you took a picture of a, a bald eagle. Nice, and it's fishing. Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting. I was driving out to the lake house to do some work out there, and it was in a farm field just about 25 feet from the road. There's airplanes going over because it's not very far from the airport. There's cars whizzing by, and I just pulled at the edge of the road, rolled down my window on the other side, and, and took pictures, and it was just in this farm field. It looked like it was bathing, but I thought, why would he be in such a place so close to so much activity? And then I thought, well, was he hurt? And he, he looked like he was dipping down and, you know, just cleaning himself. So I was just curious. Yeah, and they would certainly take a bath. Um, in a farm field? Would, well, he was eating probably in the farm field, and then he's off in the water, maybe oh. washing up after eating if he's not. Because uh, the one I'm looking at, he's in water. Yes, yes, it's uh, in the farm field, yeah. though, It's because it's a real muddy, and it doesn't seem like it's very deep. It's just melting snow is what it looks like. Yeah, and he's just probably um, slicking up after eating. You know, it's very important uh, to wash uh, regularly. Uh, I suppose we wash our hands regularly. We see all those signs. And in this case, maybe they're supposed to wash their uh, wash their feet regularly to stay healthy. And it's, uh, as far as what they were eating out in the field, you know, it could be so many things. Uh, something has died. Uh, they love venison, so it's uh, if they can find venison, that's, boy, they will eat on that a long time. And when the weather is cold, it preserves that venison. 
So it's uh, it's nice uh, that they they don't have to use any electricity or anything. They just can go out there each day. Well, there was a, I, uh, a dead deer along the road. I mean, about maybe a half a mile away. That was kind of, you know, kind of doesn't look very attractive anymore. So I thought, could that have been it? Maybe. It sure could have. They okay. they do love venison. I, you know, pretty much everything, coyotes and crows and. We had a dead deer out in the field, and there were two eagles that were feeding on it. And the crows, why they didn't go out there and eat before, but it seemed like they always waited for the eagles to go down there. And then they would form a circle around the eagles. And I don't know if the eagles tore up the meat for them a little bit or what. I think they just wanted to go down there to heckle the eagles. I think that was the only reason they went down there. It just gave them something to do for the day was to heckle the eagles. And that's probably what was going on. But, uh, boy, everything just loves loves venison. But it was so, was a f- I was going to say it was so busy, though. Why do they, I mean, why does he hang out so close to the, the road? It just seemed like there would be you know less busy places with planes and cars and things like that does they just yeah. seem so tame and so used to it and they are getting that way and they are by the road because that's where the food is oh. and uh, i'm you know when we first started getting a lot of eagles they would tell us you know don't canoe under the anywhere near the eagle nest because they, they don't like human activity and now I see the uh, eagle nests, and there's power boats and jet mm. skis going underneath them, and they seem to have just accepted us as okay. idiotic creatures, and they'll put up with us. So it's uh, it's very likely that that's why it's by, because that's where the deer are hit and where the raccoons are killed, and even cats. Uh, the neighbor's cat was run over and killed, oh. and um, an, an eagle came in and ate it. So it just... Uh, was a young eagle, so otherwise maybe an older eagle would have said, you know, I don't believe I would have ordered cat. I think I'd get <laughs> something else to eat. So um, somebody was driving by said, oh, the eagles killed this cat out there. And I said, yeah, they get blamed for that a lot, but <clears throat> it was a Kia or something that killed that cat. Oh. And the eagle was just a part of the cleanup crew. <laughs> And the other photo, it looks like a pheasant uh, through the sticks there. And that's from Don from Cannon Falls. He went for a walk uh, Monday in southern Dakota County. And he said it's a grouse. He thought it was a grouse, yeah. So he was asking you to look at it and see if you could determine. Oh, I'm going to have to look at it. You know, I'm one of those bozos. You look at something and you say, well, that's got to be a pheasant. But he's probably he said it was in southern South or Southern Dakota County, and he says, when I came across a grouse, what a surprise. Does Al know what kind it is? So that's what he's asking, Don from Cannon Falls. Yeah, and that, boy, it sure could be a roughed grouse, and he's right. That's what it is. And I apologize, Don, for not looking at it as well as I should have to begin with there. You know how we do. We look at things and say, well, that's what it is, and that's. And it, uh, I would, boy, Dakota County. Rough grouse comes down to kind of the center of the state, and then it, their population veers off to like southeastern, uh, farther southeastern than us here. And the thing with uh, all those kind of gallinaceous birds is that 
sometimes people raise these things because you see quail in places where there shouldn't be quail, and you see pheasants with uh, uh, markings and bands and all these uh, things that they put on their bills so they don't pick one another. But uh, that looks like what it would be. And uh, thanks for sending that, Don. That is really cool. Grouse are really neat birds. And there is no more avid hunter than uh, grouse hunters, I don't think. They are just, I talked to a lot of them out in Wisconsin where they they all tell me they used to have so much grouse and now they don't have many. A lot of them blame turkeys and uh, so far most of the studies say turkeys haven't been a big impact, but I have a couple friends that are grouse hunters. I would not even pretend to tell them that that's not the case because uh, they would get all agitated and I don't think it'd be good for them at their advanced age. <laughs> uh, so uh, grouse are apparently uh, I have eaten them at uh, wild game feeds, and I don't, you know, I, it doesn't, nothing jumps out at me. Do they taste like chicken like everything else? People say, oh, yeah, it probably tastes like chicken. Yeah, most of them taste like whatever kind of sauce they oh. put on things <laughs> okay. or what they cook them in, you know. So it, <laughs> it was, uh, they just say it's the best thing ever to eat, okay. a lot of these guys. So, And a lot of them are... Um, probably more cooks than hunters. They just love cooking up wild game. And like I say, I go to those things, and after you eat raccoon and a few other things, it probably diminishes whatever taste you had from anything else. Uh, it just, I, I do not like raccoon. People <laughs> pick on lutefisk. Lutefisk is a delicacy compared to raccoon. Really? Just, oh. So what what is the oily. raccoon? What is it the the texture, the taste? What is it about it that you don't like? Oily and greasy. Oh yeah, that doesn't sound good. And it might be good in a stew. Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, my dad was a hunter, Disguise and we it. used to eat squirrel stew. Oh. And mom was one of those great cooks that would tell you fifty times what, that she did something wrong, and she just wishes she was a better cook like her, like her grandmother. And mom was just one of those. Just couldn't make it. Just throw things together, and you felt like it was a meal for a king. And she would make stew out of pretty much everything. Throw potatoes and carrots in there, and it was a, a meal in itself. Did and she do possum possum stew like Granny on the on the uh, yeah, Granny Jones? You know, I don't think I ever ate possum, and I I don't know if I'd want to eat possum. Um, I was talking to a friend that's a duck hunter. Said uh, that. Some people will shoot mergansers, and he was wondering why anybody would shoot a merganser. They're a fish-eating duck, and they just, it, it, ugh, yuck, you know, they wouldn't be good. <laughs> I ate a coot once, a mud hen, because I shot it when I was a little boy, because I was a little boy and had a gun, and it was the last waterfowl I ever shot. I thought uh, that's what uh, you did to become a man. You shot things, and then you find <laughs> out later you don't necessarily have to do that. But my dad uh, made me fix it up and eat it because we did not shoot things that we did not eat at the Bat Ranch. And I discovered why it was uh, nicknamed the Mud Hen. It just, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And yet they have seasons on those, too. So I don't know if they use them for practice. I know uh, bald eagles, if I was a bald eagle, I'd be ordering a mud hen at McDonald's. They love them. They bring them in and feed them to their babies in the nest. So these coots get uh, eaten. A lot of coots turn into bald eagles. But again, Don, 
thanks for sending that. That is really cool. And uh, again, uh, um, I apologize for jumping the gun on that. Hey, I've so also I looked up. oh I've also got another one from our friend John, who is back apparently back at home again. That's he's able to send us notes. So, do you want to hear that one now? I would love to hear it. And of course, he starts it with this. You're going to groan. Think Al knows this one. <laughs> How do you make an octopus smile? Oh, man. It's got to be something with the, the eight arms, uh, high fives, eight high fives, or six. I don't know. Ten tickles, as in sounds like tentacles. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Gosh, John, you thought I'd know that? I just, I appreciate your. You've given me more abilities than I have, John, <laughs> so I just I appreciate the flattery there. I got some from Wayne Fetter from Blue Earth and uh, from Dick, Dick Blue. I think he's down. He's originally from Adelia. I think he's down in Texas now, one of those guys. And uh, he said uh, he sent me a, oh, it's a video of a Lincoln Nav- Aviator ad starring Matthew McConaughey. Okay. And he's out ice fishing. And he's, of course, he turns his car up to 78 degrees and he puts out one of these little trip uh, ice fishing devices down in the hole that he's cutting the ice. And he just waits till that's set off and then he goes down and gets it. And uh, they were wondering what kind of bird was in that. I think they were just uh, funning with me here, because the only thing I saw, it's uh, an Andy Griffith moment, because uh, McGonaghy is looking through binoculars, and he's kind of whispering lightly, the uh, whistling lightly, the Andy Griffith theme song, and then when he comes out, then he's whistling it loudly. But uh, Wayne says... Uh, let me know if I'm hearing things at the 53-second mark, so I'm going to have to check on that. And, and Wayne says, I need spring. My farmyard is a continuous sheet of ice, one that requires clamps on my boots for me to survive. I was in uh, Alaska a few years ago, and all the clamps for boots in every store were sold out, so there was so much ice. I hope everyone will come to the cafe now or the food chain. The Allendale Cafe is open again. That's, <clears throat> we are rejoicing greatly because uh, it's, uh, it's tough running a cafe. And in a little town, they are our social, they're our social media. We go in there and, and just check with people. So come to the cafe where the, <clears throat> where the food chain is missing a few links. The special is always the Heimlich Maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet, well, hardly any. In Minnesota, in the winter, you are either into ice fishing or evading ice. And by this time of the winter, the bloom is off the rose. I walk like a penguin on the icy road. Or maybe I walk like Artie Johnson's character Tyrone, the dirty old man on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In TV show. Slipping and falling on the ice was funny when we're little, but not funny when we're big. Ice is nice in lemonade, but not nice under shoes without skate blades. The good news, 
I'm saving a lot of money on sunscreen. <laughs> Remember, folks, Heartland us while we're driving past. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you all. Uh, boy, uh, Wayne and Don and John, we appreciate hearing from all of you. And thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. Thank you, Al. Hey, we'll chat with you next week. Have a happy week watching the birds. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Our good friend Al Bat, always great to have him on. It is 10.30.